0: Welcome to the Interval Health Resources Podcast, this is Bob So I just got done listening to a pretty interesting podcast Um, It was a discussion between the philosopher Sam Harris And the, I believe he's a psychologist, Paul Bloom um, and Paul Bloom, I guess, uh, does some research and has written a book, uh, perhaps, where he uh, is making a case against empathy. Or maybe it was that he has a, a book coming up that he's going he's gonna to title Against Empathy. And he's written a, he's some shorter pieces about it. And of course, you know, it's a pretty controversial title, and I know the guy's trying to sell books, but... You know, he defines empathy a lot more narrowly than you would uh, imagine. He's not talking about compassion and love and that sort of thing. But it's empathy in the sense of, you know, if somebody else that's in front of you is miserable or depressed, that you actually are feeling that misery and that depression, that type of empathy, Um, which is different than feeling compassion toward them. Um, but the the sense that you actually will be pushed around by other people's emotions, um, positive and negative. And uh yeah, clearly there's you know, there's some drawbacks to that, um, when it comes to being able to sort of make dispassionate decisions about, you know, policy and and uh different different um Things in your life where you know that empathy is going to lead to sort of bias and, and maybe not the, you know, the most um, moral outcome. But uh, actually, when they were talking, one of the, the most interesting parts about the discussion uh, was in the beginning of the podcast. Um, here's a guy who's uh, a researcher at Yale. And, uh, you know, he himself is doing, doing research on, you know, human behavior and, and so forth. And Sam Harris asked uh, Paul Bloom, you know, does he consult science and research when it comes to how he parents his sons? I guess uh, Paul Bloom has a couple teenage sons and he unequivocally uh, stated that no. Um, not at any time, you know in the past when the, when his kids were younger or now, has he ever utilized you know the research on parenting to sort of inform how he parents? And Sam Harris um, echoed that uh, Sam has a couple daughters of his own and um, I guess you know what I find really interesting about that. Uh, from the perspective of a of a counselor a mental health counselor is you know you know and I mentioned this on a previous podcast is how you know we are trained and indoctrinated in a huge way to be quote unquote evidence based in everything that we do and one of my arguments against that has always been um has always been this that you know. The heart of of counseling is really just, you know, being in a relationship with someone. It's not rocket science. It's not really all that mysterious. It's, you know, if you're a good relator, you're just, you know, you're good at uh, making a connection with someone, listening, listening. Um, that's really the heart and soul of it. And it's not really um, something necessarily that can be trained and something that lends itself to scientific investigation per se. So, you know, whenever I get sort of confronted with this this notion that we have to be evidence-based in everything we do, one of the things I usually follow with is, you know, do we do we rely on the evidence, you know, to be a good husband? I mean, am I consulting the research and the literature on, you know, how to be the best husband I can be? And the answer, at least in my case, is definitely not. That would never even occur to me to do that. Um, and yet I feel I'm able to be a pretty uh, pretty good husband. And I, I don't have kids of my own, but if, if I did have kids and, well, you know, of course I was a kid. And so I can say for sure that my parents did not consult any research on how to be a parent. They just did it. They just, you know, loved me and loved my siblings and, you know, and they did a great job. And of course they obviously observed their parents and, you know, they, uh, may have been aware of, um, of research on it through the media or something, but I, I doubt it. I think really what it, it's not, it's not the type of thing that really lends itself to a lot of scientific research. That's at least that's going to be all that meaningful. So, and maybe, you know, and any listeners out there can, can chime in and, and correct me if I'm, Uh, wrong in my thinking here but in the same way that uh, I would never consult research on you know uh, how to be a a good parent or how to be a good husband I or at least I wouldn't put a lot of weight into that Um, I don't put a ton of weight into a lot of the research on how to do counseling or how to do psychotherapy because um you know i'm aware of it and of course as a student I'm, i have to be you know aware of the research but uh especially learning about the research process itself it, it i'm struck with just how weak even you know the accumulated evidence can be um in certain areas like i mentioned in the last the last podcast i did mindfulness in schools I mean you could just look at, you know, 30 years of research and just read paper after paper and, you know, just consult the very latest studies on on whether or not, you know, doing uh, mindfulness-based interventions with elementary school-aged kids could be helpful or harmful or worth doing. And if you put all the research on one side of a scale, you know, the scale's going to move. I mean, it's not like it's worth nothing. But at least in my experience, just, uh, you know, some basic common sense things, personal experience, clinical judgment that, you know, yes, may be informed by some of the research. But just, you know, just your own personal experience uh, has so much more weight to me. Um, and that just has to do with. You know, not that research always is, is is weak or relatively unimportant when making decisions. It's just that in the area of psychology and mental health counseling, you know, the questions that are really compelling and important don't lend themselves to uh, research questions and the methodology of science in the same way that some other fields might, where you would, you know, you would consult the research, and that research would be weighed much more heavily than your own personal judgments. Um, something that Paul Bloom said in this podcast conversation with Sam Harris, he said, we know the most about what intuitively matters the least. So he's, he was talking about how, you know he's teaches or or has taught psychology 101 at Yale and people come into psychology courses and they have all these deep questions about you know self-discovery and um, you know really important questions about what we know what makes someone mentally ill what is psychological health all these big broad questions and you know according to 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 bloom, we really don't know that much about these things, or science doesn't have a whole lot to say that's really all that valuable. Uh, the things that are that it does have to say that that are much more clear-cut and valuable are on things that, you know, like on perception, color vision, you know, smaller, more narrow questions that have less variables that really probably interest people. That are are taking a psychology course a lot less, um, so we know we know the most about these very narrow things, and and I've always found this to be frustrating in in the field of psychology. I recall when I was an undergraduate at uh, Binghamton University in New York, I went in. I was a, a pre-med biochemistry major, you know, based on you know nothing. I mean, I. My older brother was a science major, and I thought it might be cool to uh, do forensic science, and that probably was based on watching a show called Quincy, which was sort of the 1980s version of, uh, you know, this CSI and these um, forensic criminology shows. And so, anyway, I quickly discovered that I, I just didn't really enjoy the biology and chemistry courses, so uh, I did a lot of soul searching, and um, psychology definitely interested me, and I I took a psychology 101 course that was very broad, obviously, and it was taught by an excellent professor who had a lot of enthusiasm, But of course, he could only give just a little taste of all these various fields. And and I thought, oh, this this could be my thing. And then I spent the last couple years getting my bachelor's in psychology, but always running into this frustration that, you know, the things I was really interested in really weren't um, showing up in my courses, you know what I mean? And the things I was that that were least compelling to me were the things that got the most um, space in the textbook because there was just more useful research on these more narrow questions. So, for example, uh, I graduated from Binghamton University and I was probably exposed to maybe a paragraph of uh, what humanistic psychology was or even... Yeah, I mean, Carl Rogers, Abraham Maslow, they maybe got one paragraph in one textbook um, the whole time that I was uh, in school. And this contributed to my sense, you know, after I got this degree, that uh, this still isn't it. I mean, I I thought psychology was going to be more about self-discovery, basically, and it doesn't really seem, at least the science of psychology doesn't seem to be about that, because you're, you're limited to... Very narrow questions that science can, you know, give good answers to. And then I'm always left with this, like, so effing what, you know, I mean, yes, certain things are interesting about the brain and and perception and things like that. But the, the questions that I was interested in just didn't yield to the scientific methodology. And so when I got, ended up getting my first master's degree, it was at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco, a place that was very i mean even i considered at the time that it was it's really was far out there like a woo type of uh, environment that didn't they didn't really care that much about quote unquote the science perspective this was a place where they could asked the most broad the most deep most interesting questions and then just bring to bear whatever methodologies um and some of those methodologies were just simply like reading super smart people's takes on things and discussing them with your peers and and doing um, you know very experiential things like if you're interested in you know the, the depths of um, your mind then meditate you know for hours on end that, that sort of thing and th- this really appealed to me because these these other you know quote unquote unscientific or non-scientific ways of approaching these questions were just much more interesting to me. And so during those years, you know, I was really pulled into this idea that if you really, you know, if you really want to learn, say, about anxiety, I mean, you could, again, if you're using the scale metaphor, you could put every scientific investigation on the subject on one side of the scale And of course, it's going to have some value, you're going to want to know how anxiety manifests in the body and in the brain and all that interesting stuff. But for the most part, you know, what I would find as valuable or more would just be, you know, a single, you know, novel that explores anxiety in depth, you know, a totally unscientific thing that's exploring it completely from a subjective point of view, but maybe really deeply. That somebody who's really knows anxiety from the inside has written, you know, um, say a novel or an essay or something about it. To me, the value, what I would learn about anxiety from that, from that one totally unscientific piece of literature would far outweigh the science. Um, and that's generally, I guess, a, a bias or a philosophy that I've taken sort of forward that yeah, a lot of the science is interesting, but as I mentioned on other podcasts, the science, especially in the mental health field, it can be incredibly biased, incredibly weak in terms of power and experimental rigor. And if you give it too much weight, I think, you know, it's really a big mistake, especially but I guess what people do is in the absence of good science they only have very, very weak science at their disposal, they feel that they still need to base their behavior and their uh, their practice and everything else on whatever science is available, even if that science is weak and, 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 and not very powerful. And I just disagree with that because I think there's other things that are available, like your own life, your own life experience, um, that, again, can be far more valuable You know, I think that my 20 plus years of investigating mindfulness and experiencing it myself uh, is so much more valuable than, um, you know, a ton of weak science and weak research on the topic. So I'm going to take that research into account, but it's just not going to you know, inform my behavior as much as my experience, and that's just a sort of a calculus that I guess we all have to make ourselves. And uh, there's certainly arguments for, um, you know, making uh, that that maybe my way is too subjective. And but but you know, psychology is subjective. All this stuff is subjective, and um, so I don't know this this sort of uh, broader question of of you know how how do we really utilize science and as i've mentioned before it just seems that people utilize it to just suit their own arguments you can find studies that just bolster your opinion that's already pre-existing that's based on your life experience and make it seem as if you know you, you have a scientifically backed opinion or that you arrived at your opinion through you know a dispassionate weighing of evidence when that's just BS, (laughs) excuse me, you had, you know, your, your opinion, and you just went out and found the science that supported it, and and actually, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with that, if you're honest about what you're doing, and you know what you're doing, Um, you know, give me a really excellent uh, study, or something that was very well designed, and I'm going to give that some weight, but those type of studies are few and far between, and most of it most of what's out there is just garbage, and all you have to do is learn about research and actually look at the studies, and not just uh, the press releases or or that sort of thing. And you may come to a similar conclusion. So um, that's all that I that I have this week. That's uh, really interested me in this sort of broad realm of uh, integral health. One other thing that that, uh, came up earlier in the week. I, I've been really listening to a lot of podcasts lately and I was listening to Maria Popova, who, um, isn't, an, has an excellent blog called brain pickings and I, her mission for the last seven, eight, nine years has just been to, you know, comment on and share literature, art, things that, um, she feels really get at the heart of, uh, living the good life, living, you know, a creative life with purpose. And, um, so I've, I've enjoyed her website for years and I really enjoyed this, um, this podcast that she, uh, this interview where she took, you know, questions, reader questions or listener questions. And one of the things that that struck me the most is, that I found relevant, you know, to maybe how I'm gonna move forward with this podcast and, and um some of my other uh creative endeavors is that she really cautioned against viewing what you're doing as quote unquote content. And this uh really struck a chord with me because as I'm Beating myself up for not, you know, doing more podcasts and more blog posts, it's really easy to slide into this mindset where, you know, you think of yourself as a content generator. And right there, as as Maria pointed out in her discussion on this topic, you're switching the, you know, sort of the motivation away from doing what you really love to do and coming from a place, uh, coming from the heart and and really creating for yourself and you're moving from that to this, you know, trying to please other people. And um, you know, viewing your creativity as quote-unquote content is more about, you know, getting clicks and selling advertising and and impressing other people and sooner or later uh that just squeezes the life out of what you're doing. And and her uh, philosophy and she's lived she's lived this and really walked the walk is that You should just do what interests you. And if you're doing something that really interests you and that you are on fire about and enthusiastic about, then that enthusiasm and that interest becomes contagious and and you become interesting to other people. So one of the things that she said is, you know, the way to be interesting is to be interested um, and that, of course, you know, makes a lot of sense to me and and there was other uh other podcasters i've listened to this week, one of them is um Dan Carlin, who does a podcast called hardcore history and he was asked a similar question and he had a similar answer Was just he he just doesn't do what he does uh to please others he He just does it for himself he does- he talks about things that he's interested in and that he's passionate about and he just throws that interest and passion into what he does. And then, you know, the internet is a big, wide place. And and if you just sort of, you know, get into what you're into and do it 100%, there's going to be, you know, some people out there that resonate with that. And that's really um, where you're going to find sort of your creative fulfillment. And, you know, how does that relate to health? I mean, I don't know. But um, uh, one of the things that is definitely true in my life as someone who values creativity and the creative process a lot as I find myself, I get really unhappy or this sense of uh, discontent or existential sort of anguish and ennui when I'm not engaging in my creative projects or when I'm avoiding them or indulging in distractions. and this made me reflect a little bit on the notion that you know negative feelings in general, are something that uh, we want to sort of get rid of, and that we always want to feel good and happy all the time. Um, I'm not I'm not sure that that really makes a lot of sense because it's it's through this these bad feelings, this this existential anguish this sense that I'm not living life to the full. I mean, that's, you know, always sort of the, the starting point to sort of, you know, getting back on the horse. And, you know, I just keep rediscovering this again and again and again, that for me, uh, engaging in creative projects and in the creative process, whether it's through this podcast or through writing or through music, is really integral to my sense of happiness and health like uh, if once if I just stop doing it, if I forsake you know this sort of mission or I'm not living in accordance to these deep values, i I just can't stay happy and content. And of course, the paradox is when I'm diving into these creative projects, they're often really difficult and involve struggle and and so it's not about just being happy all the time while I'm doing it, but there's a deeper sense of... Uh, feeling like I'm connected to, um, you know, my deepest values, my life sort of purpose that uh, makes all that, the difficult parts of it, well worth it. So that's really all the food for thought I have this week. I'll check in with you next time, and uh, I hope everyone out there is doing well. Bye-bye.